Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast, bringing you expert tips to improve safety and health at your workplace. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by SafeStart. Is happiness the key to a safer, more engaged workforce? That question, as you've probably seen, is the title of this episode and will be the focus of our conversation today. Uh, Joining us with his perspective on that question and the role happiness plays in worker engagement and safety is Rod Wagner. Rod is a New York Times bestselling author whose work has appeared in Forbes, Fast Company, the Harvard Business Review, USA Today, and the Globe and Mail. Uh, His books, columns, and speeches focus on human nature at work Rod also leads Safe Start's assessment and diagnostics practice, and he is a former principal of Gallup and Salt Lake Tribune editor and reporter. Rod, welcome. Great to be talking to you. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Excited to be talking to you. So now we're, we're talking about you know worker worker engagement and safety and how happiness plays into that. So let's start with the question, you know, how do we know that engaged workers are less likely to get injured on the job? In my view, some of the best data come from Gallup, which I spent 12 years there as a principal, published my first two books there. And Gallup has the luxury of having a large database from which they have many actual accidents. So not just do people feel safe, but did they actually have some kind of an incident? Gallup uh, separates the engagement levels within a particular company into four quartiles. They take out the middle two and compare the top and bottom quartiles to each other to see what the differential is. So we're not talking top half, bottom half, but I think that's fair to take a quarter, the top top quarter, bottom quarter, and compare them to each other. And they find differences in absenteeism, in retention, in customer metrics, and all the kinds of things that one would hope to get from engagement. But the one that pops the most, or at least is in the top three, depending on when they do the meta-analysis, is safety. And so there's something going on there. Uh, The first time I saw those statistics or ran some of those statistics at, at my client organizations, I was surprised that safety popped that much. It can be as high as 70%. In other words, the top quartile work groups suffer 70% fewer accidents than the bottom quartile work group. And that is the kind of differential that should get the attention of any safety professional. They say, okay, something is going on there. We need to understand what's happening so that we can apply it at, at our workplaces. Yeah, that very, very strong correlation there. Now, something you talk about is the connection between engagement and safety is something of a contradiction. So I wonder if you kind of talk a little bit about that. Why doesn't it, you know, logically follow that engaged workers are safer workers? There's a book written by a gentleman named Duncan Watts. Uh, The title is Everything is Obvious, parentheses, once you know the answer. And I think it's important as we look at any kind of phenomena to say, when, when an expert tells us, oh, here's how this plays out, we have a, a way of kind of backfilling and saying, oh, that makes sense. Although you could, in fact, say just the opposite. And if it came from an expert and came from daddy, go, oh, that makes sense, too. So it doesn't these things don't necessarily make sense on on their face. And let's look at, at safety for a second. The, um, if you take a frustrated worker there's something of a tug of war between him or her and the organization. You can see it in all the other engagement outcomes. So for example, retention, I don't feel a sense of progress. Well, I'm gonna quit, I'm gonna look out for myself. 
my boss is, man, it's just been really rough. We have been going, going, going. I am worn out. I'm going to take, I'm not sick. <laughs> I'm going to take a mental health day. So the employee looks out for himself or herself. And you can even see it in, in areas like uh, product defects. I don't have the right materials and equipment that I need to do my job properly. Am I really going to sweat whether or not there's defects? No, it's the company's fault that they didn't give me what I needed. And I'm not going to make it up with, with my extra gumption, my extra effort, because they didn't give me the right tools and equipment that I need to do it. So, okay, the, the, the frustrated worker looks out for himself or herself. So apropos of what Duncan Watts says in everything is obvious once you know the answer, I could have said, or the statistics could have said, the more frustrated workers, those with lower morale actually are safer. Why? Well, they slow down. I'm not getting hurt. I'm not going to work so fast that I get hurt. I'm going to look out for number one. I'm not going to put myself in proximity to the machinery over here. Just in the same way that I take a mental health day or resign if I'm not getting what I need from the job. I say, well, tell you what, I don't like this job. The last thing I'm going to do is go and lose three fingers over it. Not that I want to lose three fingers in any case, but especially I'm going to, I'm going to look out for number one. I could have if the data said that, and I and I tossed that out there as well, it turns out the disengaged workers are, in fact, safer. People say, well, it kind of makes sense because they're looking out for themselves and they're not really pushing and getting themselves in a, in a place where they might get injured. It turns out, in fact, it's just the opposite. I would, it seems to me that if anything, it ought to be kind of flat, that no one wants to get hurt. You hate your job? Yeah, I hate my job. Want to get injured on the job? No, I don't. You love your job? Yeah, I love my job. Want to get injured on the job? No, I don't. It, it seems to be an area where the company and the employees' interests are perfectly aligned. And yet we find this delta, this differential between engaged employees and disengaged employees or, or those who really love their jobs and those who are very frustrated in their jobs, uh, that, they are, that the, the ones who really are happy on the job are much less likely to get injured. And so that's a puzzle. First of all, it's just a plain puzzle um, that ought to kind of pique our interest. But then there's the very serious issue of understanding this could literally save fingers and toes and eyesight and concussion in lives. So as safety professionals, we need to understand what's going on there. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that. And that's uh, something we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. And kind of on that note, you know, what for, you know, business leaders and frontline managers, how do they need to understand, you know, that, that connection, you know, the you know, psychological aspect of, of this, if you will. Jim Harder, uh, who, with whom I wrote my first book, our first book around employee engagement. And I were in, um, we were in Germany. We're driving on the Autobahn. Jim was driving. Jim, Jim is more comfortable driving at those kinds of speeds. And we were, we were kind of hypothesizing about is it necessary for a really good manager to be essentially an amateur psychologist? And I think the answer, we both decided that the answer really is yes. Uh, the best managers are able to, and I, I use this as the first chapter in my most recent book, get inside their heads, can kind of crawl inside and say, let me look at the workplace from the employee's standpoint. What would be frustrating? What would be invigorating? Are they able to navigate the environment safely today? I even think it's important to understand someone's chronotype. Big word. It really just means are they a morning person or an evening person? You know, does this person, are, are they not very good till they come in and have their coffee and they kind of 
just go through the motions in the morning, but by the afternoon, they're on top of things or just the reverse. Are they, do they kind of wear out as the day goes on? And boy, at first thing in the morning, they are with it. If you're going to switch out a piece of machinery, do some maintenance, do something that's a little more hazardous than what you would normally do, a really great manager will appreciate the psychological wiring of his or her team and say, well, it seems to be that right about 10 o'clock, the, the night owls are awake and, and the larks, the morning people are still with it. So why don't we switch this machine out at about 10, 11 o'clock? I think that seems to be when we're really clicking. And you're like, well, okay, that's really, do we have to go there? Given the fact that some of these hazards are potentially mortal, and because in some cases, small differences can make a huge, uh, a huge difference in the, the potential outcome. Yeah, I think, I think a really good frontline manager will be quite attentive to the psychological wiring of your employees. Going, going back to, you know, the, the, the happiness aspect of it that, you know, that could mean, you know, different things to different people, you know, that could take, you know, mean taking time away from work for, for example. So in, in, in certain workplace settings, you know, what particular aspects of happiness help keep people safe? I do think there's kind of a legacy grumpiness that exists still in, particularly in many industrial settings that work, you're not supposed to be happy at work. Um, I like to quote Red Foreman from that 70s show. You know, that's, it's not supposed to be fun. That's why they call it work. If it was going to be fun, they'd call it skippity-do fun time or something like that. And, and I think in many cases, people, when they hear the word happiness, they're confusing two basic types of happiness. There's hedonic happiness, which is you're sitting on the beach, you have a cold beverage, you're reading a nice book, dinner isn't for a few hours, you can fall asleep a little bit, all those kinds of things that one would hope we're saving our money for so that we can enjoy on our vacations or, or during our retirement. There's a separate kind of happiness that is under-recognized, under-appreciated in the workplace. Uh, it's called eudonomic happiness from the Greek sometimes called Jeffersonian happiness, because it's what he was referring to when he wrote in the Declaration of Independence, the, the pursuit of happiness. Um, the, the founders were not talking about, you should be able to pursue uh, lobster and a nap on, on the beach. That wasn't what they were trying to do. Really, they were, looking, they were talking about a, a purpose-driven happiness. And we, like I say, sometimes we cringe from saying the, the H word, oh, ha happiness. I don't know if we can, that can't be part of our strategy. But if you think about it, when someone really likes their job, they use happy words. Uh, Thanksgiving, your aunt or uncle says, how's the job? Do you, how do you like your job? Like, okay, like, we're starting to get towards happiness. And if you really do like your job, you start to say, I have a great boss. You know, I'm learning a lot. I feel like I'm accomplishing quite a bit. Um, I, re I really enjoy, enjoy working there. Well, what's enjoyment? Enjoyment is a form of, of happiness. So there is that purpose-driven happiness that is very much aligned with having a great day at, at work. And I think that a lot of industrial managers and leaders need to loosen up and, and provide space for the fact that, yes, happiness not only is, is a good thing to look out for your employees, but it's a central part of a high-performing strategy, which includes safety. Okay, now you're building on that, that, you know, the idea of happiness, that something you talk about is that many aspects of happiness of their job are created well upstream of potential accidents. So you know, what do you mean by that? And how would you advise business leaders to think about that? 
I've been arguing recently that pay and benefits is a, an aspect of happiness and therefore safety. Certain things that have been done months before that may be one of the contributing factors to an accident or to keeping someone safe. And we can certainly see that in the current labor environment where we have a shortage of people. First of all, with Agile and Lean, I would argue in many cases, we decided maybe not intentionally that we were going to have people work very long hours, very short staffed. Well, we, we want the minimum level of staffing possible. That's not always your bet. In fact, I would argue it's, it's rarely your, your, um, your safest strategy. But the decisions you make about pay and benefits have an effect on staffing. And when you're already agile or lean, and then you're also down a person or two because you can't retain or recruit people, that is a recipe for disaster. It has struck me in going to the safety conferences. First of all, I'd never seen any more gloves in my life. That's the first thing you see, gloves and hard hats and fall protection everywhere. And I understand that's a very tangible aspect of safety. But um, it does strike me that in the safety profession, we have a certain bias for things that happen proximate to the accident. As we should, lockout, tag out, clipping in, wearing PPE, hitting the horn on the, on the forklift before you go around the corner. All of those clearly are the kinds of things that, would, uh, that, that could have saved a particular accident or do keep people safe if they're done well. But at the same time, you have a system, whether it's job design, um, the installation and maintenance, inspection and maintenance of the potentially dangerous equipment, the staffing levels, the scheduling. All these are decisions that are sometimes made months or years in advance of an incident, and yet they, they have an effect down the line. They can set up the conditions under which people are more likely to be safe or more likely to to get injured. Okay. Now, uh, a word that, uh, you know, we we hear a lot these days is mindfulness. Talk about how you think about mindfulness in terms of safety. In my view, the highest forms of mindfulness, which is to mean an awareness of your own state and your surroundings, but the highest form of that is in a hazardous environment. And it's the most important place where one ought to have mindfulness. In other words, um, okay, I'm, I'm walking into the, the steel mill today. How good was my sleep last night? Did I get, uh, as um, Matthew Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, calls a non-negotiable eight-hour opportunity? Did I get that? No, I stayed up late and I watched the, the Minnesota Wild game or something like that. So I'm on six and a half hours sleep. Okay. Had I slept well the few nights before so that maybe a little bit of caffeination will get me close to it? Okay, maybe. Am I walking into an environment where I understand everything that's going on? Have I been well-trained, well-mentored so that I can... I I had a conversation with um, some sailors who work on the deck of an aircraft carrier, the USS Nimitz. If you ask someone who works on, who has their qual, their qualification to be on the deck of an aircraft carrier... They will describe a level of mindfulness that is mind-blowing. They will, uh, if you give them a map of the deck, they can take a a red pen and they can mark out invisible hazards and how they're going to migrate as aircraft come in for a landing, take off, helicopters coming in, jet blast over here, watch out for this, that, don't stand here, definitely don't cross this line. They have this incredible level of 
mindfulness and they're usually quite conscious of their mental state as well. Like I'm not going out there unless I've, unless I'm well rested, take a second, gather myself. And I put all my mental energy in there and they'll describe as they come off the deck that they kind of let down, like, okay, I'm not near a propeller. Nothing's going to blow me overboard. Now, now I can be at ease. I believe that is the highest form of mindfulness and that it's important for leaders, managers, and frontline workers themselves to, to have a high level of discipline around their own mindfulness. Definitely. And those are two really, really, really great examples. Something else you talk about is advocating for a, a holistic perspective, you know, where the discipline of keeping people safe is used to, you know, boost other areas of performance like productivity, product quality, and uh, even profitability. So I wonder, you know, what's, uh, what's the, the data behind that? I think the story that most people know is from safety legend Paul O'Neill. It was featured in Charles Duhigg's uh, book, The Power of Habit, a whole chapter dedicated to Paul O'Neill coming on board Alcoa and saying, as soon as he taken over as CEO, saying to the Wall Street analysts, we're going to lead with safety. You know, we have a good safety record, but we need, we could be a whole lot better. And so my message is we are going to figure out how to be an incredibly uh, safe organization. And there are some investment analysts who are in that meeting who told Charles Duhigg that I, I went out of the meeting and I, and I phoned back to the office. I said, sell, sell Alcoa. It's the, some crazy guy who did, he didn't talk about inventory turns, profitability, EBITDA, any of those kinds of things. This standard CEO talk that we hear on those quarterly uh, conference calls. He didn't talk like a CEO. And I think he's going to hurt the firm. Turned out just the opposite. It was one of the, if you just, if you were really smart and you saw where he was going, you would have poured all your money into Alcoa. It was one of the highest performing um, stocks during that period. Uh, a few years ago, I grabbed that story as kind of an intriguing question. Was this a one-off? Was this attributable to Paul O'Neill's personal style, Alcoa's particular situation relative to their safety record and what they, how they need to clean house and what they need to do, or are there broader lessons to be taken from that? And I went in and found a number of studies that indicate, one of which where uh, the researchers into a hypothetical um, portfolio dumped money into firms to the degree that they had won safety awards and found that those firm, if you just look at who's winning the safety awards and you just pour your money in, you're going to beat the market quite um, consistently. The broad evidence is that the discipline required to have a stellar safety record imposes a kind of discipline required to have performance in a way that may be unique. It's at least as good as any other strategy. But it may, in fact, be unique because keeping people safe requires that you be watertight. Everything You can't have something, a little wobble over here or a little confusion over there. You need to really be on top of things. You need to feel comfortable speaking up to your manager. You need to be communicating as a team. You need to have a high level of stewardship for the, for the machinery. Take, all, take safety out of that and just describe that and say, what does that sound like? That sounds like an organization that is wired for high performance. 
continuing on that on that theme of data, you touched on this a little bit at the beginning. And again, there, you know, when you look at worker survey results for for an organization, what kind of patterns are emerging? What are you seeing? You know, are they are they similar from one company to another, or you know, does each organization kind of end up with a different situation and you know, and therefore a you know, different strategy for safety? Yeah, a little background. I joined Safe Start four years ago, and we began with a nice clean slate. Let's let's build a safety survey that has the same rigor that is put into consumer goods. So we went in and grabbed every piece of research we could find to say what makes what cultural factors make people safe. Is it belief in the leadership team? Is it your manager being there? Is it wearing your PPE? Is it having a good night of sleep? Is it not being overly fatigued? I mean, you could go through a whole, a whole host of things, some of which are last line of defense. I feel comfortable hitting the red button. Some of which are, are way upstream. The leadership team has a solid strategy for keeping people safe. And we analyze these, we, we ask people the degree to which they feel at risk on the job. And we analyze these to see which are most highly correlated. It, it ever, we have had no two organizations that have had the same fingerprint. If it was super consistent, I would just write another book and say, well, every time we go into an organization, here's the pattern we find. And if you're running a steel mill, if you're running a cheese factory, if you're running a fiberglass factory, if you're an air, aircraft uh, part manufacturer, whatever it might be, this is, I mean, I could come in and do a survey, but this is the pattern. This is what you need to, to, to pay attention to. So every one of them is, is different. And I happen to be very obsessed with sleep because it seems to be such a, a, a high predictor of whether someone's going to have an accident or not. And it's interesting to me that you can see the sleep one move around. We did some work for a public utility where there are eight hour shifts uh, everybody lives pretty close to town. And unless there's an outage, um, people work, you know, it's an eight hour shift drive, 15 minutes home, there you are. So you can get eight hours of sleep pretty easily. And that, in that case, sleep was, it was still positively correlated with people's sense of safety, but it tended to not to be very high. If you look at a biopharmaceutical facility where people are working 12 hour shifts and they tended to have 45 minute commutes, okay, you do the math, that's only 10 and a half hours at home assuming you go straight home and it's not snowing and all that kind of stuff to get that, what Dr. Walker calls that non-negotiable eight hour opportunity. You got an hour and a half split between both ends. So time to eat your Cheerios, help the kids with the homework, watch a little bit of hockey. You don't really have much time. And in that case, sleep was the highest predictor of whether people felt um, safe on the, on the job. So no, it, um, it is unique for each organization there are a few kind of general trends. One is that um, workers, and I think this is important for leaders to understand, workers actually cut their leadership team a high degree of slack, even when they're having frustrations. You know, do you trust them? Yeah, I trust them. Do you think they're looking out for your safety? Yeah, I actually do. Do you, do you feel like they have a pretty good strategy? Yeah, I do. But then when I ask questions about, do you feel pressure to keep working when you're overly fatigued? Uh-huh. Uh, do you feel situated? This one scares me. When it's when it's answered in the in the positive, do you feel like there are situations where you feel pressure to continue, where you don't feel like you have sufficient expertise or experience? And I get large proportions of people in nearly every industrial environment that say agree or strongly agree. Tell me what that's like. Like I'm not entirely sure 
where I'm going here, but the boss says we got to get this stuff moved out. It's got to get on the truck. So we'll just keep going. Yeah, well, if we're talking about things upstream, that was upstream. That's some, some, some training or mentorship that didn't happen months, maybe years earlier. And now in this particular incident, and yeah. And, and when the accident report comes out, it's going to say, well, you know, failed to clip in um, confined space entry kind of thing. We didn't do that properly. You didn't have a line going in at someone watching you, all that kind of stuff. And you say, well, why, why did this happen? And in a lot of cases, people say, I'd never done the procedure before, or I hadn't done it very often, or no one really showed me or the, or, and this is one of the questions we asked too. The guy who'd been here 20 years said, I don't sweat what they told you in the training. Here's how we do it. Not that that would ever happen, Scott, right? They, we, we never heard of that happening, but it does. And it's dangerous and it shouldn't happen. Now, the term uh, reciprocity comes up uh, a lot these days, you know, especially when we're talking about behavioral science. So talk about it in terms of, of our conversation. You know, how does that apply in terms of keeping people safe on the job? Uh, if you pay attention to the Nobel Prizes, and I'm not saying I sit around and wait to see the announcement like people do with the Academy Awards, like who's going to get best picture and all that. Two names will pop up, Daniel Kahneman, Richard Thaler both of whom won the Nobel Prize. And, and they did so around issues of behavioral economics, behavioral science. There's been a huge revolution over the last 30 years or so between traditional economics, homo economicus, if you go into the Latin, you know, the, the economic man, the economic woman who makes decisions based on a, a, a selfishness. What's best for me? I'm just going to do, I'm going to put in the minimum amount of work uh, for the most amount of pay I can possibly get. It's not a bad program financially, but it's, um, it's kind of theory X. You need to always be behind your workers, pushing them. They don't really want to be here. They hate their jobs. Um, so we're just going to make them crank out as much work as we can, then they can go home and be happy there. That revolution in the last 30 years or so has been towards homo reciprocans, the reciprocating human. And it taps into truths about human nature that when we do something for someone else, they feel a moral obligation to do something for us. Let's say the couple down the street invite you and your significant other over for dinner. You go there, you have a great time, you watch a football game, whatever, it's wonderful, you come back home. The immediate conversation is, well, we need to have them over. I mean, we can't just like go to their house and eat their, eat their food and like, okay, where the economic person say, hey, free food. We don't, have, we're not having them back over. Oh, it's great. We got free food. We know we're good. No, there's a, there's an interplay at Thanksgiving. Someone uh, invites you over. Let's say it's you're away from your family. You're going to go to a friend's house and they say, um, um, Hey, why don't you come over for Thanksgiving? The first question, well, what can I bring? And, and they have to tell you something. If they say, Oh, don't worry about it. You're like, no, 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 no. Let me bring the rolls or a blue, I got a good blueberry pie I make or something like that. You feel incomplete if you don't, if you don't do something. The same thing is true in an industrial environment that if you do things for people, they feel an obligation to do something for the, for the company. Let's take, let's take PPE for an example. You could argue just it's basic intention. Like you got to have a hard hat on just in case. And if you're wearing one, you're complying and you're good and you can walk through. Okay, that's fine. We got the basics covered. What if instead a company set up a PPE store? What if you took 
your industrial workers and you said, we're going to set up a PPE store. You can come in and everything in here is compliant with what we need. And we have five, six, seven versions of everything. You pick out what you want. We got a fitting room. We got people who are experts in this. The company reps come in. We'll get you the best steel-toed boots, all those kind of things. We don't just want you to be safe. We want you to be comfortable. You're going to be in your PPE 8, 12 hours a day. We want you to be super comfortable. And if you need something replaced or it's not fitting, come back. We'll take care of you. We, I know sometimes people use that term industrial athlete. I think it's overused. But this is a case where industrial athlete should absolutely be the case. And what are you unleashing? Reciprocity. Someone going home saying, you're not going to believe this. But guess what they did at my company? You're sending a signal to them that you are going to take care of them at the highest levels. And what you get back is they say, well, there's a wobble on that machine. Not in my house. I'm going to speak up. What about this? Hey, teamwork. Hey, no, no. Let me hold that ladder for you. Let me show you what I learned about that. Before. I don't want you to get hurt. All thousands, tens of thousands of little tiny connections. Hey, wait, little conversations speaking up happen, which make the whole organization more tightly knit and, and safer through that, that reciprocity. Absolutely. I think that, that that's the, the PPE is a great example. And when you, when workers see that level of commitment from the organization, that's just going to strengthen their, their feeling, their resolve that this is, this is a great place to, to be. Yeah. It's almost like a Jedi mind trick. Like, Hey, you want to trick your workers into working really hard and taking care of you? love them up, take good care of them. You just fall all over yourself to take, to take good care of them. And, and, and then just watch them, just stand back and, and watch how they, and that's part of the, you know, when you see the differential in the, in the Gallup data uh, on the higher level, that the workers who love their jobs actually have this, this higher level of, of safety. There's um, I've said, we, we, we need to talk about the mechanisms, why, why that would be. You can't just say, well, we're going to spread this magic pixie dust of happiness through the workplace and people will be safer. However, because of reciprocity, that's actually true. I don't think it's enough to build an entire strategy on. But if you say it's the right thing to do, we're going to look out for our employees, but it's also strategically the thing to do that will allow in ways that we can never track, never legislate, never, in some cases, maybe not even see because so much is going on inside their brains that they will be a safer workers and our organization will perform at a higher level overall. Absolutely. Well, anything else you'd like to add uh, about you know, worker engagement, uh, creating a, a happier workforce as, as we get ready to close out? The only thing I would say is, well, yeah, let me, let me hit it with kind of a, let me put a sharp edge to it if I could. I began my career as a journalist, as you mentioned, and I was a police reporter. That means you get to ride in a fire engine once in a while and you get to go to all kinds of, you know, you get to know the cops really well. You go to, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a, an invigorating job uh, and usually quite fun. The problem is if someone dies, you're the guy that's there asking the incident commander what happened. And if you're in your twenties, that messes with you. Wait, what, what happened? And, and you start asking yourself the question, well, how, how could this have been prevented? Which I didn't know then. I know now. Um, anyone, I, there's an interesting thing that I've seen among companies. 
that many of them get religion, if you will, after something really, really bad has happened. This is important work. I, I think if you're in the business of leading and managing industrial workers, there is no more important call, no more sacred duty you have than to be able to crawl inside the heads of your workers, understand how they're wired, understand how to help them be mindful and navigate an industrial environment uh, than the, you know, th this, this science. And, and it, is, it is understandable. I don't think you have to go get a degree in psychology. I think you just have to really study it, talk to your workers. Why would this be? Where are hazards? When is someone likely to get in an accident and apply that? And then the weird thing that comes out of it is um, you always know who got injured. You never know who you saved. But statistically, you know you did. As those accident rates go down, 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 as things increasingly don't happen, you can go home with a certain satisfaction that like, well, I just have the sense that if we didn't do that safety initiative that we started three years ago, someone would have gotten hurt that is not hurt and is home watching hockey or playing with their kids or whatever. And that's a very good feeling. Absolutely. Uh, that's what, what this is all about at, at the end of the day. Well, um, I think that's, that's a great note to end on. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on, Rod. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've given our listeners, safety professionals, employers, and others uh, a lot of really important things to think about. So I uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. Thank you, Scott. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.